Hey, this is Daniel. Thanks for listening to DIY Money. If you haven't already, be sure to give us a five-star review on iTunes so your friends know that they can learn from the show. Now, enjoy the show. Welcome back, ladies and gentlemen. You're listening to another edition of DIY Money. Wow. Money. DIY Money. Money. Money, money, money. Money. Rock money. Money, money, money. What's up, Daniel? Speaking of money, let's talk about FDIC limits. Mm-hmm. $250,000. Why would anyone keep Covers more than... most people. Why would anyone know keep... Uh, we know some people who have more than that. Why would they keep more than that in a bank? I don't understand that. Personal preference. Personal preference. Maybe open another bank account. Yes. Lots of businesses, though. Keep yep. Quite a bit of operating capital in banks, but they should understand it's above the limit. And prior to a week ago, technically, still technically uninsurable. We are having a lot of conversations with small businesses out there that are using uh, local and regional banks. No knock against them. We need them in our country, in my personal opinion. They serve a phenomenal purpose. I think they're going to face a lot of difficulties going forward. Nonetheless, we are talking with a lot of small business owners that keep a tremendous amount of capital in one bank. Payroll, operations, administration expenses, etc. And we're advising a couple things. Uh, an immediate solution, just so you are aware, more often than not, you can call up the bank and for a small fee, um, often it is it is basically the, the cost of what you might be earning in that checking account, you can actually increase your FDIC insurance. Uh, many banks are uh, you know sort of pooling, they pool their FDIC and there's there's different levels that you can increase to. Uh, sometimes it's up to millions and millions of dollars. So that's the first thing um, to check into. The second thing is, and I always, uh, well, I've never advised this prior to this past couple of weeks, but making sure you have a, an additional bank account in the event that's a hiccup transpired. And this could be this could be technical. I mean, this doesn't even have to be a banking crisis. This could be a technical issue, a computer issue at a particular bank. And what if you can't get your payroll out or something? So uh, some of the horror stories we heard was not someone saying um, we didn't have access to our money. I mean, the FDIC stepped in in these instances and, and bailed these uh, banks or these depositors. Let me make that very clear. They did not bail the bank out. They bailed the depositors out, and that's fine. But then these depositors didn't have another bank to take it to. They had to go through the process of opening up accounts, getting those EIN numbers, get, you know, then wiring it. In. I mean, it was a nightmare. So maybe go through that, those steps uh, you know, up front. It, it all comes down to here's the deal. It all comes down to contingency plans. Don't put all your eggs in one basket. You're, you're not going to be able to plan for everything, but, you know, there's a lot you can think about and say, this is a contingency plan. At I have least some have cash a plan in B. my house. You don't have to go all the way to Z. No. I mean, At least a plan B. I'm not. Some people are bunker people, like physically building the bunker. I'm not one of those people, but... I have some cash in my house and small bills. I have access to der- various different bank accounts if I need it, uh, credit, you know, et cetera. So, I, I you know, different investment it, it, portfolios, different diversification strategies. So, I, I think you can have kind of contingency pa- plans. Does that, you know, am I protected completely from Mother Nature or health? No, I'm not. I mean, that, that still happens. You got to live your life, but I think you can be smart about it and and. Um, you know, not face some of the challenges some people do who overlook these contingency plans. Fair enough. Fair enough. All right. 
Um, what else we got? What other things going on? Any other housekeeping things? DIY Tribe is rocking on Facebook. And it looks like TikTok might be banned, so... Because you're going to shut down your TikTok now. Bring, I don't even have a TikTok. Uh, bring, bring the old uh, TikTok viewers over to Facebook. You know, the old school. Go retro. I wonder when that'll come back around. Everything comes back around. Sure. Bell bottoms are back in. Can you believe that? Weird. Retro. Yeah. So, I mean, maybe, pe- maybe, the, maybe the cool kids will move from the Insta back to the Facebook. Could happen. To the meta. Anyways. All right. We got an interesting question today. This is kind of uh, uh, the second round of a question like this. We had it a few episodes, a uh, t- similar one, a few episodes ago uh, regarding uh, you know social investing. In this instance, using the buzzword ESG. Uh, so this question comes from Zach. Zach, what do you got? D-I-Y! What's up, DIY Money? This is Zach from beautiful, sunny San Diego. My question for you today is about environmental, social, and governance funds, aka ESG funds. Recently, I've seen Vanguard advertise ESG funds as an option in their new robo-advisor. I wanted to know what criteria gets used in determining what companies are ESG fund worthy and what you guys think about them. Can I make the world a better place by using ESG funds in my financial planning? Or is it just a gimmick with limited options and higher expense ratios? Thanks for what you guys do and making my commute awesome. Later, dudes. It's Sack. Sack Master. <laughs> I have such, such uh, you know. Gusto. Yeah, I love it. I love it. Sure. All right, Zach. You know, at the risk of being wrong, you know, on this, I'm just going to say, no, you can't make the world a better place with your investing dollars. I'm sorry. It's just not going to happen. And it's a gimmick. I know that's not popular, but it is rooted. Let me tell you why I believe this. And this, I know I'm going to upset some people. And I'm going to tell you my stance on some of these things. So before you tune me out, please hear me on this. When you buy a stock, you have transferred your dollars to someone else, a person, in exchange for rights to ownership of a company. Now, make no mistake, here's what I didn't say. You did not give your money to the company for them to do business. Unlike when you buy a piece of clothing. If you are buying a piece of clothing or an item from a company, your money is going directly to that company and you are using their product. That money is then booked as revenue. It is used to pay employees. It is used for administration expenses, property, plant, and equipment, research and development. And ultimately, it creates net income, which goes back to shareholders or insiders or board executives or whatever. So I really want people to understand. I understand the idea of stock ownership and you supporting, quote unquote, supporting a company. But unless you're participating in the IPO or directly buying a bond from that company or a secondary share offering from that company, you are not actually supporting that company other than, now I know this is where it gets a gray area, other than possibly supporting the demand for the stock which, yes, may translate into stock compensation for 
inv- or, uh, employees and executives and so forth. So I get that. I get the optics of if everybody walked away from a company that maybe didn't do great things for the environment, the share price would collapse, <laughs> management would be fired, and they'd probably be out of business. So yeah, I guess if everybody collectively woke up and said, we're not going to support this company, but newsflash, there's buyers and sellers, and that's not going to happen. So I I really struggle with this because it feels, I've been around the block, this feels so gimmicky to me. Uh, here's ESG, make you feel better about yourself, what you're investing in, etc. I I just think it's gimmicky. And, and I also struggle with a, a lot of the ESG-type standards. So to answer your question, that Vanguard, they may have their own internal, I've not researched this, but a lot of them subscribe to third parties that are doing their own research, they're doing their own due diligence, and they're ranking a company based on those three standards, environmental, social, governance. I won't go into the definition, you can obviously understand what those are just by the name, but they'll give them a ranking, and based on the ranking, we'll determine where they fall in inside the investment, inside the mutual fund. I have a problem with that because for a long time, I don't know if this is still the case, I think people woke up to this, is a company like Tesla would fall very high on that ranking. Now, again, that might have changed over the last couple of years because I think people have grown up to the fact that Tesla, while they're removing dollars from investments going into fossil fuels, there's a little thing called a lithium battery we're having a problem disposing of in our country, and not to mention cobalt, which is mined by 12-year-old men or uh, males, and they're basically slave labor in West Africa. So there's certain companies that you might optically say, well, this is really great for for the environment, and then the other side of it is, well, what about this byproduct, or what about how they get that? I mean, so I have a hard time with that. Now, let me tell you where I fall. Oh, finally. So getting back to the situation, if you want to sort of, quote, unquote, invest socially, just don't buy products from the companies you don't believe in. Because that's where your money is directly going to support that business. Now, the last thing I'll say is, I'll turn over to Daniel. I'm interested in his thoughts on this. Is just from a good conscience standpoint, if you don't want to own something, don't own something. I mean, there are certain investments I just won't own. There are publicly traded strip club companies in our country. I will not buy them. Fundamentally, they may, may sometimes be very attractive fundamental stocks. Like, wow, this is at a deep value. I'm not going to buy it. I'm not going to buy it ever. And the reason is, optically, I don't want to be ever affiliated with that type of business. Personally speaking, it's just not for me. might be for you, not for me. I don't have a problem buying a beverage company that serves alcohol. I, it's just not a problem for me. I, it doesn't, doesn't bother me. I don't have a problem buying a defense company. It's just not personally what I have a problem with. Now, if somebody did, just don't buy that company. Now, you're going to have a hard time alienating that company out of an index. So you have to kind of decide where you fall on that. In conclusion, I would say this. There's some groups out there. One of them is the Calvert Social Funds. You can look into there. They have done well over time, and they might fall into the category that you're looking. But I hate to say it. I think it's a gimmick. What say you, Daniel? Fair enough. Yeah, it's a, it's a screening, filtering, and ranking mechanism to, uh, in some sense, try to uh, identify and elevate companies who are 
managed in a particular way with the idea that maybe those will either outperform or resonate with investors in a certain way. And so uh, for me, I don't really participate in that. Um, I've not done an extra amount of background research in it. I think to some extent what it can do is it can create uh, overvalued companies who rank highly uh, via that filter because they're put into a spotlight and then undervalue companies who aren't until some new sort of method or spotlighting comes along, which shuffles the deck on on valuation. So primarily with most of our funds, we just invest in uh, broad-based index funds, fully understanding that underneath that index, there's a wide swath of companies that represents the entire uh, U.S. and international stock markets. Those companies are doing businesses, which in some way, shape, or form, we philosophically support by buying the entire index, though I don't know every single company in the index. Probably some of those companies are doing things that we may not uh, support. In fact, every company that we own, whether that's uh, Apple or Google or something, somewhere along the line probably doesn't make a decision that you're happy with. Um, but that doesn't necessarily mean that you don't own it. It just means that, you know, you're not personally responsible for everything that they're they're doing, unfortunately. Uh, it's the same way when you buy a product. You, you're, you're not making a statement that you support 100% of every decision that that company makes. Uh, and that's just... I think the nature of going about life uh, to some extent. So uh, from a financial planning perspective, we look broadly at assets and how those assets do and how those assets fit into a plan. Um, I've not yet seen a strong argument for utilizing ESG as a category within those plans like we would say U.S. stocks, international stocks, emerging market stocks, alternative assets, bonds, things like that. So we keep things at a very high level asset class because we have enough sort of history, data, and analytics on high level asset classes to know if we allocate in a certain way, we can have a certain range of confidence about the forward potential returns, a lot of hedging language there, right? On what those uh, what that'll do for the plan. Because what we're trying to do when we create a financial plan is go, we're starting with X amount of assets. We have whatever goals in the future. And we want to make sure that those goals are funded when we arrive there or throughout retirement, et cetera. And so we need to be able to craft a portfolio uh, based upon all the available options there in the investment universe that we fundamentally believe will arrive us there uh, in the best way. And so uh, we utilize those type of asset classes that we have a strong history of uh, data on being able to do that. And ESG... I've just not dabbled in enough nor seen enough of a history on it to qualify it in that grant, in that camp. I think it's a slippery slope as well. I'm not sure where it stops if you start to go down this path, meaning um, I, I admire someone who is, um, you know, really subscribing to a belief or a value, even if those I don't necessarily agree with, and they're, they're willing to to sort of head down that pathway. I mean, there's probably certain things I believe or th things I do in my life that I'm certain not everybody agrees with. But now, to be a professional bull rider, I mean, it takes a lot of heart and try. That's okay. I don't care. I, I do, you know, I believe what I believe, and I do the things I do. And I think as you sort of go down the investment path, if, if, you, if someone is sort of not willing, if you make a decision, I'm not going to compromise on this. And I've thought a lot about this because we get, this type of question a lot. I think the only the only outcome for you would be to sort of start a business. And I'm not challenging you to start a business, but 
you invest in companies to get to get income, cash flow from those businesses, whether they're reinvested in the business and the cash and the stock price goes up or you get dividends over time. Uh, the reality is if you're not going to invest in another business, you would then need to invest in your business. You would then need to start a business that derived income for you and your family so that instead of being a passive investor, you were an active investor, and then you could sort of construct uh, your own ESG sort of standards. That's what I would challenge someone to do. What does that look like? Start a farm, you know, start a farm and, you know, grow crops and livestock and sell. I mean, you know, that's what I mean, like, or Mm -hmm. or get involved in real estate and, you know, make sure you uh, follow a a socially sort of uh, stance when it comes to renting to tenants and how, you know, and that's okay. I mean, that's perfectly fine. But I think you, I think you either have to make a decision and say, okay, I'm, I'm okay owning some of these things, but I'm like I said, I'm not going to own this or I'm not going to own this. I'm okay owning this. I'm okay owning this. Or, no, I'm not. I'm not okay owning these things, and so I'm going to go down this path. And I, and I think, again, um, that'd be the only option. I, I don't – because I could make a case you wouldn't even buy U.S. Treasuries yeah. <laughs> supporting the U.S. government. <laughs> I, mean, I think, in short, what we're trying to say is there's values and there's, um, you know, goals-based approach to investing. And your values don't always generate return. Um but if you're investing by goals, you're looking for what is a company that's producing a profit, that producing a product, which then inherently produces a profit, which allows me to have a return on my funds and produce, you know, get to my goals. Same thing with when you buy bonds or something like that. This bond has, is an investment which has X amount of return and, and helps me achieve my goals. And I think. Uh, it's not bad to have values, a value filter on sort of your financial plan. And, and we incorporate that aspect into financial. Like what what is it that you value? What is it that you want to get out of life and, and things like that? But I think if you start to mistake the fact that your values will inherently be more profitable because your values are noble, that's not always the case. And that can um, potentially lead you astray. It's not that they're bad values. I think... Uh, having noble values are great, and having virtue is fantastic, but that doesn't always resonate into into profits. And I guess as long as you're okay with that, uh, by all means, follow your values as uh, strictly as you desire. Excellent. On that note, we're going to leave it there. Remember, friends, the secret to wealth is pretty simple. Live on less than you make, invest the rest, and do so for a very long time. Make it a great one. Thanks for listening to this episode of the show. If you want your question aired on the show, be sure to send that to us and you'll get a $25 Amazon gift card. This show is for entertainment and educational purposes only and is not intended as personal financial advice. Before making any financial decision, please do your homework and consult a financial advisor as needed.